You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Bob. On today's Right Show, I'm pulling a Terry Gross. She is, of course, the legendary NPR host whose interview archives are so deep that when pretty much anybody who's very famous dies, she can run an old conversation with them on her show. The famous person in my archives who just passed away is Edward O. Wilson, the Harvard evolutionary biologist who entered popular awareness in the mid-1970s as author of the book Sociobiology. The controversy over sociobiology made the cover of Time magazine and had a big impact on me. About a third of my first book, Three Scientists and Their Gods, was about Ed and sociobiology. And my second book, The Moral Animal, was about evolutionary psychology, which Ed considered basically a rebranded version of sociobiology and which certainly has a lot of overlap with sociobiology. I really liked Ed a lot. He came from humble origins and had a difficult childhood, but through talent and determination, he wound up as an eminent biologist, arguably the world's leading expert on insects. And though the sociobiology controversy was painful for him, he got through it and used the fame it gave him to advocate for taking better care of planet Earth. I'm not sure of the recording date of this conversation, but it's at least 16 years ago and maybe closer to 20. So Ed was in his mid-70s. He died the day after this past Christmas at age 92. First of all, thanks for taking the time, Ed. Um, I wanted to start out by asking you uh, how vindication feels. Um, about 30 years ago, you published the book Sociobiology, and you proclaimed that we were going to see a revolution in the Darwinian understanding of behavior, uh, animal behavior, but including human behavior. You took a lot of heat for it, and not, not just intellectual criticism, but some really nasty ad hominem stuff. And I know you had some unpleasant times here at Harvard. Now, 30 years later, so far as I can tell, it looks like you were right. Um, I mean, there's uh, th this whole worldview that you outlined uh, is much more widely accepted, seems to be gaining momentum. Um, and I would think that if you're the kind of animal that, that you say humans are, you would take some delight in, in the vanquishing of your foes. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put it that way today. I don't think it's so much in terms of vindication now uh, as I do uh, a full blooming of a scientific development that actually has been made possible by thousands of, of researchers. Uh, 30 years ago, I suggested, actually it was uh, 34 years ago because I really laid out the whole idea in a book on social insects, ants and other uh, insects with highly advanced societies. The insects. The idea of, the a, book, yeah. of a discipline of sociobiology and I said, if we take Darwinian principles and we combine them with what we are learning about genetics, neurophysiology, and the like, then we will have a well-ordered uh, new discipline of the study of the biological basis of social behavior. And that was basically the idea. When I wrote a comprehensive volume, most people hadn't, didn't pay much attention to work on ants and termites, uh, wrote a comprehensive one. In, uh, it was Sociobiology, the New Synthesis, which was published in 1975. Uh, I um, had most of the book devoted to animals, which is where it belongs, I guess, particularly in those days, since we didn't know that much about the biology of social behavior in humans. But I had a chapter uh, that I added on human beings, just to be complete. Mm -hmm. uh, the chapter on animals, the, the 23 or 24 chapters on animals, were later uh, 
uh, voted by the members of the Animal Behavior Society, the International Society, as the most important book on animal behavior ever. Hmm. Uh, I even beat out Darwin's uh, expressions of uh, the emotions in animals wow. and man in that vote. So it was not that the book itself was rejected, it was a last chapter in which I said these same principles that apply to animals should in some way already also apply to human beings. Mm -hmm. In fact, there already was a lot of evidence that that was the case. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that was proposed at the time when the academic radical left, I think it's fair to call it, mm -hmm. was predominant in uh, expressing views, at, at least, on the relation of science and the human condition. It was a thoroughly blank slate universe of Freud and Skinner and, mm -hmm. and uh, Marxist interpretation uh, so uh, that I plunged into, uh, actually rather unwittingly, since I didn't think there would be, I didn't realize there would be any political feedback. Uh, the furor that caused, particularly, it was on the left and mostly pretty the far left for various reasons that could be gone into that are now mostly of hist interest to his historians of science. Um, the um, uh, it was it was it was how shall I say it tumultuous mm -hmm. time. Now, uh, thirty years later, that's almost all forgotten. Yeah, it's a different it's amazing. climate. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. Well, what? What, what happened was that the psychologists and anthropologists lifted out that part of sociobiology. I don't mean necessarily my book, but you know, the thinking, the mm -hmm. Darwinian synthetic thinking. Mm -hmm. They lifted it out and gave a new name, I think, as, as much to have their own identity, which was justified as, uh, uh, as uh, camouflage to protect themselves from the barrage still going on in the 70s and early 80s from the left. But you think it was partly, you're talking about the term evolutionary psychology? I am. And, and, uh, and, and uh, they, it was, they gave you it think another... it was partly camouflage. In other words, fairly or unfairly, and we would both say yeah. unfairly, the word sociobiology had acquired a, some stigma, a political It term. did, in the human realm. Right. And to some extent, this was a strategic move on the part of evolutionary psychologists uh, to was. disassociate They, they went in, uh, they went forward with a new banner. Mm -hmm. But it's still, I think they acknowledge, uh, at least a spin-off of, of the original sociobiology. Mm -hmm. In fact, sociobiology, uh, combined with behavioral ecology, have flourished in biology, in fact, not much noted by the intellectual community, but certainly by the, intellect, by the scientific community. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but now the strange thing is that with the collapse of uh, the radical left, the radical left's influence, <clears throat> in academia, uh, even here at Harvard, a recent poll had a small ma majority of uh, students classifying themselves as conservative. I mean, it's hmm. collapsed, and people uh, coming in now as graduate students at Harvard frequently, even in biology, frequently never even heard of that there was a controversy that's just accepted, uh, sociobiology is just accepted now, including in the human realm. But now, 
we seem to be developing the potential for heat out of uh, the, uh, the radical right mm -hmm. in this country. Uh, the opposition of the religious right to evolution generally is, in fact, uh, largely uh, an expression of uh, their dislike of, well, human sociobiology. The idea that, so? uh, if you think about it, uh, namely that the mind and the traits of humanity and the passions and the, the value formations and so on uh, could evolve biologically, as incidentally Darwin himself saw clearly in, uh, in his book 18, in 1873. Right. The, that idea is in fact the uh, casus belli, the, you know, the cause of, of the religious rights continuing assault on the very idea of evolution. So it's, if, not just create, it's not just the conflict with Genesis, with the creation story in the Bible, you think? That's the case uh, when you push uh, literalism, you know, interpretation mm -hmm. of the Bible, as you get in some of the, uh, uh, the Prot uh, Protestant, mainly Protestant uh, evangelists, that is true. But the main opposition, the mainstream opposition is the idea that you have, for example, in, uh, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, is to uh, the idea that the human mind could have evolved. That, that's an interesting way to look at it. The, the um, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, it's it's uh, so it's partly a materialistic view of behavior. The idea that there may yeah. not be a soul. A physicalist view, if you want to use that word. That is that uh, there is only matter and energy in the mm -hmm. universe. And that's your view. And that is my view. I think it's a view of the majority of uh, of, of scientists who are statured. That is, you know, who actually gone deeply enough into science to uh, have uh, uh, done original research, uh, peer-reviewed and, and, uh, and generally accepted now in the textbook. And so are you at all um, mystified by consciousness? I mean, there are p people who are materialists, I think of as basically materialists, like Steve Pinker, who, who would say that they would put themselves in the category called Mysterians in the, in the mind-body uh, kind of debate in the sense that they don't really understand kind of why consciousness has to exist or they don't know how to characterize subjective experience. Even if they believe that mm -hmm. there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between subjective experience and physiological state. In other words, you can, you can pin it down to physiological condition, but they're still puzzled by the existence of consciousness yeah. or something about it. Where, where do you fall in that debate? Yeah, I think that was an argument first put forward by Leibniz, wasn't it? He said that you, if you got inside the brain and you could track every little part of the brain, I don't think he knew about neurons or anything, what was going on inside the head. Right. Uh, you could understand every little thing that happened and yet you wouldn't understand the whole, you wouldn't understand the mind. Hmm. Uh, that's an argument which uh, has a certain amount of logic to it, uh, but I think it also uh, underestimates the power of, of science in uh, synthesizing. Uh, the uh, masses of data accumulating from reductionistic approaches. In other words, uh, I believe that um, a Mysterian view of, of saying, well, maybe it'll always be a mystery, which is adopted by some philosophers and a, and a few, maybe a few neurobiologists, uh, that it never will be grasped. We will never understand why we think. 
I think that's premature. I believe that's just a, a statement of we do not yet know. I believe myself that we will come fully to understand what the mind is. I even had a go at it as an amateur in my book, uh, Consilience, uh, The Unity of Knowledge. I couldn't pass by that subject and, and be claiming to talk about the unity of knowledge. And, and the way I saw it is, is that um, the, uh, what is happening in the mind is literally a recreation of a little world uh, that uh, is what uh, we are, uh, with a self at the center, the central actor, with different parts operating, some out of sight and coming into uh, that uh, world of uh, consciousness. And uh, that that is uh, probably the way we will eventually explain consciousness, and thus the mind. And the, uh, it, it will be more than metaphor when we have uh, brain activity fully mapped out. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to ask you about the book Consilience. Um, you just mentioned the term reductionism, and, and you, don't, you mean reductionism in the kind of legitimate sense. I mean, some people use the term to mean the simplistic <coughs> yeah. explanation of, of behavior or, or, or of, of any system. Yeah, reductive you, analysis. You, you mean that, uh, you know, the ability to explain activity at one level, at a higher level of organization, in terms of laws at a lower level of organization. So, for example, human psychology, explain it in terms of biochemistry, molecular biology, ultimately even in terms of the laws of physics. That's yeah. pure reductionism. And first of all, Am I right in thinking that to some extent consilience is a polite term for reductionism? I mean, it's, it's a nicer sounding word that doesn't come with any taint, but it, you're talking about the reductionist project. Here. I am in part, but then as I emphasize in the book, science consists of two uh, activities, uh, creative activities. Uh, all scientists, successful scientists, uh, biologists, as a scientist generally, but biologists assuredly, uh, take a complex system. They take it at some level of biological organization. It can be an ecosystem that now they set out to explain in terms of the units of the next level down. Mm -hmm. Species and interaction, uh, elements of the environment with which they are interacting, and then uh, the, uh, those who work on organism or organismic biology are usually doing it initially mm -hmm. uh, in an attempt to crack complex systems at the level of the tissue or organ or whole organism and so on down. Uh, it's obvious that you do not, you cannot take pure physics and chemistry and predict how an ecosystem is put together. That's the emergent property. Mm -hmm. But uh, to say that is not to say that uh, it is not, uh, there is not a consistency of explanation from one level uh, to the next. And the way I put it is not explaining an organism or an ecosystem in terms of physics and chemistry, but to say that one of the two great principles of biology is that all biological processes and elements are obedient to the laws of physics and chemistry. In other words, by cracking complex systems sequentially down from ecosystems to macromolecules, cracking them, 
and going on down, then you will find obedience uh, at the lower levels to laws of physics and chemistry. But then science is not just that kind of reductionism. It is true that science right now is primarily reductionism mm -hmm. uh, because of the spectacular successes of subatomic physics and of molecular biology. But everyone recognizes that the next stage in science, and including especially biology, is to resynthesize, to put it back together again. Either literally, someday I think we will be able to create a simple prokaryotic organism, either literally or with mathematical models and new experimental tests of our system so that we finally will begin, at least in certain routes going from molecule to ecosystem, be able to have a more or less, if not complete, you know, mm -hmm. a, an illuminating... Okay, so you, you're kind of an in-principle reductionist, leaving aside the question of how soon, if ever, we'll actually realize the complete reductionist project, R right? I mean, um, and... Oh, and, I think we will come close in, within a few decades. And, and in any event, it's kind of in principle yeah. possible. That's the way the world is structured. In other words, but, there's no mysterious yeah. thing that enters from beyond the realm of physical causality. Exactly. That's why I refer to myself as a physicalist, and not just a materialist. In other words, I have no doubt whatever the molecular biologists will in the next decade or two, for a simple cell at least, like E. coli, will be able to uh, identify every important element and every important stage in proteomics, that is the building up from DNA into uh, a form uh, a protein ensembles. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's uh, still, a uh, identify them, but that's still a long way from putting a cell together and understanding how all the parts are working simultaneously. In theory that can be done, and eventually will be done for the simplest systems. But we may not be able to uh, cover all of that terrain. We, however, will be able to cover enough to make, I believe, physicalism, literally, okay. physicalism. And if you're a physicalist, if you're yeah. an in-principle reductionist, can you still believe in free will in a meaningful sense, or don't you have to be a, a determinist in principle? I mean, well, before we enter that uh, fever, <laughs> I fever we'd knock that off in about thirty seconds. <laughs> no, before we enter religion. that, yeah, that fever swamp of philosophy. Let me just go back for a moment and tell you why I have some confidence uh, in the program. Synthesis is so terribly difficult that uh, some people don't realize uh, that, uh, or even conceive that it can be done. But, but I would say that it can be done, and as it is done better and better than what we call emergence, you know, that is properties which are unique to a certain level, ecosystem, mm -hmm. organism, and on down, uh, will become well, they're, they're unique. better known. I mean, they will, we will have a, have, understand yeah. them in cause and effect. And that's actually the core of the consilience uh, uh, concept. It's not just reductionism. Uh, it's the likelihood of uh, eventually a fairly successful and complete reduction uh, synthesis cycle. But it's not inconsistent with reductionism, right? In other words, no. an emergent property, to say something has an emergent property at some level of organization, say the human social level, is just to say that the most efficient way to describe the behavior at that level is to use the language of these emergent principles. It's the most pars parsimonious way of talking yeah, about that's it. That's exactly right, yeah. The reason why I, one reason why I have faith, <coughs> excuse me, is um, 
it's been outside, you know, the main developments outside what most people aware about of science and in biology know, and that is the uh, the tremendous progress of um, toward explaining the superorganism to explain right. emergent properties, uh, for example, especially in social insects. So my colleague Bert Holdobler and I, who've published and worked together some 20 years here at Harvard and published the book, the summary book of everything known on the ants, for example, in 1990. Which won, which won the Pulitzer Prize? Yes, it was a big surprise. Uh, it's, uh, we are now uh, just finishing up a book called The Superorganism, which makes that point, which says, look, Organisms we can understand well enough. We can understand the interaction of whole organisms because we can see them and we can do experiments in the laboratory and move it along uh, the subject along so quickly. And furthermore, we can uh, uh, the the processes themselves are relatively simple. Pheromone, you know, chemical mm -hmm. language by which uh, ants and bees communicate, mm -hmm. relatively easy to understand, and so on. So we have been able, that is, you know, the, the entomologists and others who've worked on social insects, have been able to uh, take the level, to go from the level of uh, organism up to properties that are exhibited only by whole colonies, by superorganisms, mm -hmm. and, and understand it, synthesize it, and really understand it, emergent properties and cause and effect explanation. So I realize this is a very simple system compared to a cell. But nonetheless, the success of the work on social insects of the past 40 years has uh, given me that personal faith. Yeah, well, that brings us back to religion. I want to ask about science religion. I wanted to first yeah. quickly give you the opportunity to finish, if you were going to finish, on the subject of free will. I mean, I ask you about free will and whether you can reconcile it with reductionism. And, and, and uh, you, you asked me to, to postpone the free will question per se. Do, do, you have a, do you have free will, for example? You and I do, and I guess everyone watching this does. Uh, I almost just at this point try to cop out and, and say, uh, refer you to Daniel Dennett, who's done this, he's, penetrating a work on this as I've seen. He's a compatibilist. Yeah, but I'll, I'll just give you my take on it. Uh, in terms of our uh, ability to make personal decisions, independently and combined with our own inability to predict what, except in you know, special narrow categories of behavior, to predict what we're going to be doing <clears throat> from one day to the next, uh, recognizing that any event, small or large, can change the whole direction of our thinking and even the way we think, mm -hmm. uh, means that we, uh, we have what is thought of intuitively at the level of consciousness, full consciousness, intuitively as free will. Uh, but if you go down to the level of uh, brain physiology and uh, hereditary propensities and individual history of individuals, and if you knew reliably what their environment was going to be, then you could probably predict a lot of what their behavior would be, a contingency analysis, you know, given certain circumstances. So you start taking it away a little bit, and once you get down to the level of those uh, tens of millions of, no, billions of neurons, and how they're going to wink on and wink out and decay and so on, 
you can see this becomes maybe a philosopher's uh, dream of uh, determinism. And even, but even then, uh, there is uh, a random element almost down to the quantum level. I well, guess there down is, to the quantum level. There is de facto yeah. random. So uh, the fact that, uh, you know, if, if you could fill the universe with supercomputers, mm -hmm. maybe, and, 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 and fill uh, the brain of Robert Wright with, uh, Wouldn't with, take with long. nano monitors, you know, in a, unobtrusive nano monitors, but then of course you'd be violating one of the basic principles of causation in science. But if you could do that, maybe uh, you could say uh, what uh, Robert Wright was going to be doing for the next 24 hours, and therefore you could tell, oh, you're determined, Bob. Or you could just ask me, which would be yeah. faster. <laughs> but uh, you can see what an impossibility it is. Well, a practical impossibility, but if yeah. it's in principle, but this is what people worry about. If determinism is in principle true, regardless of whether you could actually do the prediction, then people I say, oh, you. I don't yeah. actually I Certainly, have you're right. In other words, in that sense, um, I, I was making it all in terms of predictability, wasn't I? Yeah. Um, and it's unpredictable. Uh, and uh, beyond that, uh, I suppose that uh, we have to uh, stop counting those random changes on a pinhead and come back to the real world, which is the intuitive conception of free will that we started with, which is that we know so little of how our brain works, of how the world is, is changing, uh, that we have to make so many personal decisions along the way that we are exercising, independent of other free wills around us, our own free will. And uh, so in practical terms, if not ultimate terms satisfactory to a philosopher, we have free will. So you recommend people thinking of themselves as if they had free will and getting on with their lives? Absolutely. Okay, they're, that's, they're what, that's what I'll do then. I was waiting for your guidance. Well, <laughs> I hope it's not in the wrong direction. No, but I, you know, in a sense, uh, I think that the way we're talking about it helps to um, solve one of the great theological, theological problems, if you want to do that, which is uh, how can we think of ourselves as independent beings and be responsible uh, if God knows everything we're going to do? And being, right. omniscient, and being omniscient, he... He must. That was oh. the first appearance, I think, of the free will of, of the determinism question in yeah. in intellectual history. I'm not sure, but I, I think that's I the way think, it first showed up. I think that must be right, and of course, it's it's one of the uh, insoluble uh, dilemmas created by semantics and by uh, by fuzzy thinking. You know, it's fuzzy subjective mm -hmm. and metaphorical thinking. Uh, so I think that uh, you know, recognizing that the existence of a problem does not presuppose the existence of a solution. There are just certain problems which are not valid. I mean, they're so subject to uh, uh, to, to, to a sloppy uh, metaphorical thinking and the unknowns of the world and so on. And beyond practical they're just testing. Not, they're not worth thinking about. But in practical terms, that's really what we're interested in. Mm -hmm. We're really interested in do we have free will as we intuitively understand it. Whether God knows what we're going to do or not uh, is uh, is what counts. Okay, well, speaking of God, 
Uh, you've just finished a book that I think has religion and science in the subtitle, An Alliance of Religion and Science or something like uh, that? Well, I'm just finishing it now, and it's about to go off to the publisher. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about it, because I think that it addresses an important issue. Um, actually, the title of it is, uh, is, would be, as I have it now, Ascending to Nature, Subtitle, An Alliance of Science and Religion which may sound rather strange coming from a scientist who's often um, you know, pointed out as to be a, uh, an atheistic, uh, uh, materialist, uh, secular humanist of the worst kind. Of the worst kind. Uh, but uh, in, in that category, I can always say, oh, I'm to the right of uh, Richard Dawkins, <laughs> <laughs> just an aside. But at any rate, um, how, how can I be talking about alliance of of science and religion. Well, I do it uh, in calling on uh, the religious community in one long essay to uh, join the scientists to save the creation. I point out at the beginning that uh, here is an area where we can differ absolutely in how we think the world works and the meaning of humanity, the, you know, the meaning of life, which is what the cultural war is all about. Mm -hmm. And we do differ drastically. And I think insoluble be. That mm -hmm. is, it is not soluble. Uh, so you can take that for what it's worth. And I'm not going to be one of the scientists, you know, who keep waffling and saying, oh, well, uh, you know, science has its role, religion has its role, science has its own kind of truth, religion has its own kind of truth. Somehow, as we work more and more, they will somehow come together. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't think that Darwin would have believed it. Uh, and uh, I You think, know, I think you used to make noises kind of like that, didn't you? Uh, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I mean, this has two parts to it. First of all, I think you're among those who think that the evolution of human intelligence is not all that improbable. I mean, uh, you know, natural selection, nuts and bolts natural selection, encourages uh, through competitive dynamics the growth of intelligence and so on. Um, and I thought I recalled you saying, in principle, you can imagine a kind of deism or something, that natural selection was yeah. set in motion, uh, you know, the, is the unfolding of the divine plan, even though it's a sheerly materialistic system. Did you not the say The first that? part of what you said is correct. I, whenever I'm cornered, Consider I have to use a word I, uh, uh, at, about it all. I'll say, I'll, okay, I'll call myself a provisional deist. Now, a provisional deist is, uh, I'll strictly define as someone that uh, uh, considers at least the possibility that the ultimate laws of the universe were set by some kind of intelligence, whether it was satanic, <laughs> benevolently. Judeo-Christian or uh, some unseen meta-intelligent. Uh, the point is that, you know, it's premature to say that uh, because we can define the laws of the universe, uh, we also can define their origin. And I, I, I won't go that far. But uh, so uh, I, I would leave open, I, I, I consider this a problem in uh, astrophysics. But I would leave this open to the astrophysics, physicists mainly, of deism or not. 
uh, but I absolutely uh, believe uh, that the evidence well, the shows, I think now conclusively, uh, that uh, it's, it's unrealistic, it's, it's false reasoning to believe in a biological God. Meaning a God that oversaw and directed the creation and evolution of life. So that is... That intervened I, in the evolution of life. That... that, that uh, yeah, that, that did. I mean, you can imagine one that, that, that created the first speck of DNA or something and then let it go from there. But you're saying a, a guiding hand is, is, is not plausible. I think that uh, parsimony demands that uh, we uh, uh, go with the assumption that life can originate on its own. Sure. Because I think we'll do it in the lab before too long from basic materials. Right. And show the conditions under which this could occur autonomously, that is, on its own. So maybe our creator God was an advanced civilization. I mean, Francis Crick had a, threw well, that out, I think. Yeah, you know, you may know how I, what I think about religion. I think religion is an extremely adaptive phenomenon, and, and it's one of the powerful propensities of the human mind. The human mind is guided by... Uh, uh, just a small number of extraordinarily intense instinctive drives, you know, and they, in, they include uh, uh, mother-infant bonding, they include uh, tribalism, uh, they include uh, uh, quick uh, hated, uh, hateful response to uh, cheaters, uh, a number of things that have begun to work out, the avoidance of instinct, uh, of, uh, of incest. The, uh, and I, th I think that religion is one of them, and that uh, we uh, that this has always had enormous Darwinian benefit. The tribes that could believe that they were superior, that were bound together uh, by all of the rituals and the myths and uh, the uh, symbols of solidarity and the rewards of heroism, and uh, but above all of their innate superiority as a tribe were the ones that had the confidence and the willingness to go through personal sacrifice in order uh, to prevail over other tribes. And uh, that's, that's history, mm -hmm. uh, almost undeniable uh, principle of history. So uh, we don't need to think that there is a, uh, how should I put it, a supernal right. influence. So the religious impulse is another, not evidence of... A god, because you can explain the impulse itself in biological terms, you think. Easily. Right. Now, you've, you've talked about the role of religious impulses in other contexts, including scientific inquiry, and in terms of your own motivation, as yeah. I recall, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. How does that... i tell you, before we get to that, though, let me finish what I was... Okay. ...about the Alliance, because anyone listening to oh, us is right. going to wonder... That's where okay, we started. Well, how is this... <laughs> I'm glad somebody's keeping track <laughs> how, of this interview. How, how is this... Arch, uh, you know, secularist, uh, gonna, if he says that he doesn't uh, believe there ever will be resolution, uh, how is he going to form an alliance? Well, you can find, form an alliance between people of different tribes and of, of, of completely different uh, worldviews, and that's essentially what I'm proposing. Uh, I'm using this, you know, to let's get together. But on the near side of metaphysics, Leave that a little bit toward the horizon. Let's get together. On specific on this, issues? On specific issues. And uh, because science and religion combined are today the two most powerful forces in the world.
And if you can combine them to address particular issues, one is obviously world poverty, but another is saving the creation. This is at the heart of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I don't care about the interpretations that say, well, conquering uh, the world or being in, put in charge of the world in Genesis, which happened. Uh, I don't believe that that meant, and this is uh, the way uh, Billy Graham correctly put it, that mandate does not mean trashing the world. It means taking care of it. And that is fundamental, uh, Judeo-Christian and, uh, you know, Abrahamic uh, religious um, belief. And, when you, and, and I think it's probably at the heart of most of the Eastern religions as well. And since most people are devoutly religious, and one, you know, around the world and in the United States, most are religious to a strong degree, it is therefore follows that if we could combine our effort to save the creation, save biodiversity, save the world's ecosystems, the world in which we were born, uh, then uh, we would actually see some action on a subject that's very dear to my heart, which is saving the rest of life. So you'd like a kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, an alliance between science and religion for kind of policy purposes, for pragmatic purposes. As far as reconciling their metaphysical worldviews, I gather the only two possibilities you see are a kind of a deism that we talked about and a kind of maybe a kind of a pantheism. Like if you want to view the whole universe as in some sense God, fine. Or, I don't know, do you, or do you, no, do you even go that far? No, I just... You uh, agree that... I leave deism open as a mostly... A and that's the, only one, that's the only one you see? That's the only potential reconciliation you see? Well, let me put it this way, oh, Bob. If uh, new evidence came in tomorrow, say for intelligence design, if that could be devised, no one can figure out how to devise it, but if it were, uh, I would be quick to change my mind or, you know, start reconsidering everything. Yeah, well, that's a... Uh, intelligent design, uh, it's called, they call it, its adherents call it, the theory of intelligent design. I don't even understand the sense in which it's a theory. I mean, what what is the intelligent design movement, so far as you can tell? It's a default argument. Uh, it says that, uh, essentially all it says, is that uh, biologists haven't explained some of the most complex phenomena in terms of evolution. They can't they can understand how evolution could create it. Uh, and therefore, there must be um, somebody who put it together. If it can't come autonomously from mutation and natural selection, which is the heart of Darwin, Darwinian or modern biological thinking, let's say, uh, then there must be something else, and uh, that has to be an intelligent designer. That's, that's it. So it's not a testable alternative Theory. No, it's a default argument. And, and, and default arguments are sometimes stimulating in real science for getting research started. Right. You say, oh God, we haven't, you know, this, we've explained a lot here. We, it all fits together. We haven't explained this. Uh, and uh, that this, it, this just doesn't extend or explain that. So we better start taking new directions. That mm. works as a strategy of creative thinking in science, but it never becomes a theory. Right. You know, to say that, well, we haven't explored, we, we don't understand that yet, therefore God must be doing it, or somebody outside. And also, uh, 
I want to point out two things to the intelligent designers and, you know, those who have hope for this approach. It's not science. There's no way, there's not a shred of evidence for it. There's no way, no mechanism, no way it could happen that we could ever understand. Therefore, it depends almost entirely on uh, the uh, pointing to the areas that the uh, proponents are claiming to be um, insoluble. But that is very dangerous. First of all, for the, from their point of view, particularly from the fundamentalist, and particularly the literalist point of view, one, it concedes that evolution occurs. That's a big concession. Two, it depends for, for, uh, for its authentication on the continued existence of unsolved problems in evolution. But if you look at the history of evolutionary biology and molecular biology, of the last 30, we've been knocking those off one right. after the other. I mean, they're like shooting balloons at a state fair. <laughs> and uh, so uh, if, if creationists stake uh, everything or make it pivotal uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the default argument, hmm. uh, then they're going to find themselves uh, in a very, very poor position. And therefore, the whole religious approach you know, there's a, if I can natter on for a moment, there's another issue here uh, that needs to be dispelled, you know, a claim on the side of uh, the defenders of religious uh, orthodoxy in explaining or explaining away evolution. And that is that there's some kind of a conspiracy by scientists that, that you know, evolution is, is, a, is a religion of its own, it's an ideology. Uh, and that there has to be some kind of a conspiracy that calls uh, virtually all statured biologists, meaning, you know, biologists of proven originality and insight and so on, people who've uh, uh, established themselves through important, influential, peer-reviewed articles. Uh, some sort of conspiracy among all these people not a one of which incidentally accepts intelligent design, of my knowledge. No, there are no statute scientists who accept this or takes it seriously. But is there a conspiracy? Can there be a conspiracy in science, among scientists? No way. And I'll tell you why, which you personally, I know you would understand anyway. The entire culture of science is based on verifiable discovery. Making an original discovery is the gold and silver of science. You make an important discovery, and therefore, then you are an important scientist. Uh, it, you can be any kind of a, a jerk, you know, otherwise, and never make another discovery, and you've made it as an important science. You go into the textbooks, and if it's important enough, into the history books. You are richly rewarded with prizes, with prestige, uh, with all sorts of other Roman values, uh, you know, and the, uh, that, that give you a small triumph. It's what every young scientist wants. Any young scientist, or well, any scientist of any age, would, who uh, could be the first to demonstrate intelligent design, or even show how to test it and, sh and prove it, uh, would immediately 
become one of the greatest scientists in the world. He would make history. He'd get the Nobel, he'd get the Templeton Prize, which was set up, you know, to, to encourage the getting together of religion and science. And there's nothing that a young scientist would want to do more than to achieve something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, science is a totally, it, its value system is very different uh, from that of uh, most um, Western, uh, most uh, processes or, or organizations or institutions, activities of Western civilization. Yeah, the, the thing that puzzles me about intelligent design, I mean, one of a number of things, some of its adherents, they concede that natural selection can do some things. And so they, they concede that in principle, natural selection can create things that look as if they were consciously designed because they're so functionally adaptive. Mm -hmm. But then they'll just point to some things and go and say, oh, no, but that's that, that looks kind of too much like it's, I mean, once you've conceded the point in principle, I don't see, I don't see how they think they can draw a clear line. I mean, natural selection right. can build on complexity and build on complexity in principle ad infinitum. And well, it could. And as I say, uh, there are uh, one complex <clears throat> system after another that seemed almost impossible to explain by, you know, by evolutionary process, stepwise has been explained that way, and then more and more evidence uh, adduced to show that, in fact, that's probably the way it did happen. Mm. Uh, so this is, uh, they are very, uh, the uh, intelligent designers are very vulnerable, not only uh, from uh, the growing corpus of scientific knowledge, but also in the weakness uh, that they provide, uh, that they give to the fundamentalists. They could be the fundamentalist's worst enemy, because they're conceding natural selection has some Because power. they're conceding evolution. Right. And they're conceding natural selection for a lot of phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they're making it uh, the strong point of the, or the, the, the scientific, actually, the pseudoscience. Well, okay, the, the seemingly scientific uh, foundation of modern fundamentalist belief. Mm -hmm. uh, by doing that, and, and, and if they... Uh, draw these allies, you know, the, the literalists and others, members of the, uh, intel, uh, the religious community into it, uh, then they're going to be uh, putting all of them in a vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we started to talk about ways that the religious impulse can manifest itself in other contexts like science and actually has in your own mm -hmm. life, I think, yeah. right, in your scientific life. Sure. I mean, you were conventionally religious as a, a teenage Southern Baptist. And Darwinism displaced your Christian faith and, uh, uh, fairly straightforwardly, I think, in your college years. But you've, you've carried some aspects of religious experience or emotion or motivation into your science, right? Oh, yeah. Some, one writer recently referred uh, to, um, the uh, to the Baptist within me. And I'll grant it readily uh, because many of the uh, traditions of uh, Southern Baptism linger, and that includes uh, independence of thought. You know, there are no priests or, or, or uh, uh, ministers in a in a conventional sense. Right, it's uh, decentralized. But, uh, essentially, a ba a pastor who looks over the flock who are working on, uh, you know, understanding the Bible uh, and. Uh, and uh, interpreting it on their own and so on. Of course, Southern Baptism has evolved as any 
strong religion would into a very uh, tradition-bound uh, set of beliefs. And um, someone has referred to, or many have referred to, Southern Baptism, Baptist at uh, uh, Southern Baptism with uh, 15 million members strong, at last count I heard, as the Roman Catholicism of the South. In other words, it's the dominant religion, but uh, it does have its, its star uh, pastors and so on. But um, that uh, sense of independence uh, was bred into me. Uh, you know, you have to learn it on your own. You have to decide to come to the altar on your own. Um, that's so strong that I, I'm surprised that uh, so few former Southern Baptists I know of, as opposed to Presbyterians and so on, have gone in so str strongly into science. But I may be wrong on that. That's, that's not relevant. The other thing about Southern Baptism was the passion. You know, evangelism is a passionate expression of, of self and belief. And uh, I often turn in to, uh, tune in to one of the evangelical sermons, uh, star quality, you Still. Know, one of the star evangelists. Hmm. Yeah, and, and enjoy it, uh, listening to it and watch it unfold. I watch it the way an Italian watches opera. <laughs> I, I enjoy the performance. You may have, I, and that you may have certainly offended has, some Italians there, but anyway. What's that? I said you may have offended some Italian oh, I opera could, buffs there. I, but. I, I could not because, uh, of course, opera is one of the great achievements. Mm -hmm. But you know, uh, a well-delivered evangelical sermon is a considerable it's, it's cultural a beautiful achievement. Thing. At any rate, the point is, uh, these people and I, in my origin, address subjects with passion. And to me, uh, that is what scientific research is all about, passion. You know, the great excitement of discovery and what it all means. I always thought that all scientists thought like that, but maybe, you know, they don't. To read books of yours like Sociobiology or On Human Nature, one would get the impression that you're very conscious of being an animal yourself. Right, you're conscious that, that human beings are animals. I'm wondering if that is a burden in everyday life or a blessing or what? I mean, does, does it enter your consciousness often or, or, or affect the way you approach life? Or that's a, that's a very interesting question. I never was asked that question before. Huh. Uh, but it's a very important one, too. And I say my response can immediately be uh, it enriches my life. Uh, it's helped me enormously. Uh, when you realize that you are an animal, when you understand the imperfections of your body, you understand your longevity, and you understand your place in the real world so much better that it gives peace. And having peace and having a sense that you belong here uh, that you were raised here, so to speak, the species was raised mm. here, uh, you are more inclined to be engaged with it. The real world to a lot of people, most people nowadays, I suppose, really means social, their community of other human beings. And nature is just incidental and their bodies are just way stations to a, another life. And that has some pretty severe restrictions on uh, the full poetry of your 
uh, understanding of your existence. So I, it gets richer for me as time goes on and I know more about myself and the species. Also, many people might, while many people might think that uh, realizing our animal nature, our animal origins, is, uh, precludes uh, eternal existence. Uh, and suppose that that must disturb the peace of uh, the non-believer. It is, I think, if anything, the opposite. You make peace. So the fact that death, that you anticipate death being the end, yeah. does not bother you? Not at all. I saw a recent uh, poll of members of the National Academy of Sciences, which are 2,000 or so, who are supposed to be the science elite of this country, elected by peer uh, voting. And uh, something like 90% registered, no concern hmm. about an afterlife. And you, it's actually enriching in some ways, you're saying, to, to know there's no afterlife? It actually enriches your, your life or your approach to it? Well, I, you know, I've, I'm not going to take Pascal's ar uh, argument and, and, you know, take, uh, join a church just to be safe. But uh, sure, the, um, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with uh, mortality and the limited number of years I have left, as was, I think, most uh, scientists and major philosophers in the past. Um, the, in fact, uh, eternity is something that the believers ought to take more seriously in uh, calculating how this is going to affect them, particularly after the first trillion, trillion years, shall we say, of bliss, when uh, it's enough time has passed so that this universe will evolve and pass away and new ones by the million, one after the other, will come and pass away. And what it meant that they are in that existence, eternal existence, and that's just the beginning of what, of eternity, that they are in that existence in heaven or hell uh, for all that amount of time incomprehensible to the human mind and more to come because of some decision they made about a particular religion at an infinitesimal segment of time. And when you look at it that way and realize that the human mind cannot exist in bliss, that's not the way the mind works, it needs time. It needs a time scale to exist. So you don't uh, think then you begin to think, well, maybe it isn't so bad to lose eternity after all. In, in, in exchange for having a sense of the texture of time. That's right. So you think they may find themselves unhappy in heaven then? If they, of course, you don't think they'll find themselves, but... <laughs> they're going to find themselves bored. You think they would find it a little bit? Yeah, monotonous. they're going to find themselves bored and wish that they had uh, more people like Darwin to talk to, whom I presume is not going to be there. I'm speaking now... Depends of, on the criteria. I mean, I, of course. He lived I'm, a good I'm life. speaking now of the fundamentalists who really, and I hope, hopefully few, in number, yeah. really believe in a sharp distinction between heaven and hell. Yeah. The um, now it's interesting that you said uh, Darwinian view gives you a sense of belonging because, of course, some conventionally religious people would say, "No, no, they have a sense of belonging because they think there's a God that intended them to that's be true. here." Uh, that's that's how they get their sense of belonging. 
Right. But your and yours derives. How would you how would you characterize exactly what your sense of belonging derives from? It it, it derives from a realistic science based view of um, what individuals, human beings, are and uh, where they came from and their species. You belong to the species and you belong to this world that created the species. So you're part of the family Absolutely. of organic life in a literal sense. You can actually yes. trace the family tree. Yeah, that, if anything, is an essential statement of what could be called a philosophy of naturalism. Okay. Now what, what some people say they don't like about thinking about themselves as animals in light of uh, sociobiology or evolutionary psychology or whatever is uh, some of the things they say uh, are that uh, you know to, to think of love or altruism as being ultimately in some sense self-interested even though it may be a remote sense it may just be that, that the, the altruism was in the interest of your genes and the environment of our evolution and it may or may not serve your interests or your genes interests now but still the very idea that these things originated for self-interested reasons and sometimes are still deployed in a, in a covertly selfish way, even an unconsciously selfish mm -hmm. way. A lot of people say this devalues love or somehow unsettles them. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think it does devalue it. I imagine that some feel that it might. But it's uh, some, somewhat comparable to um, the truth that would come from um, thinking of the brain as the instrument, you know, the musical instrument that has been developed over millions of years and of the playing out of human nature in an evolving culture as a beautiful melody hmm. and the emotions felt uh, as part of it. And when you look at it that way and you realize that um, there is almost infinite beauty possible from the instrument and from the permutations and creation of the melodies, uh, then an organic origin doesn't seem quite, it does not become basic, uh, debasing at all. What's debasing in my mind <clears throat> is the thought that, uh, that we're just creature, creatures who are almost like puppets uh, put on earth by a superior being who we really can't quite understand and whose dicta are, uh, that we are to follow were laid down uh, appropriate to uh, desert uh, tribes, uh, patriarchal tribes some uh, three millennia ago, and do not apply easily to uh, most of humanity. Uh, so uh, that is what's restricting. And also when seen as a source of, of unending tribal conflict, my, you know, uh, my God is superior to your, to your idols. Uh, my purity of, of, of thought and belief uh, is um, high above uh, your uh, corruption and error. Uh, I think then that the naturalistic view which allows adaptation of the mind uh, and uh, a much broader seeking of truth from the natural world and from inward examination is much the better way to go. You know, it's funny you should use the word puppets in describing what bothers you about a religious worldview because 
I don't know if you remember, but the Time magazine cover in the mid-1970s about uh, the sociobiology controversy had these marionettes, yeah. actual people, but rigged up as marionettes. That's right. So yeah. clearly the, the view from the other side was that your, yours is the worldview that would have us as puppets. Yeah, as seen from the left. That's, that's true. Wasn't that interesting? But that was due to a misconception about what human nature is. Uh, it was uh, a, uh, a view of uh, human genetic determinism that no one believed, the sociobiologist or anyone else believed. They could easily see that that was not true and it was never anything I proposed. Right. Um, do you think believing in God would make it easier to be a moral person or, or in other words, do you, do you find it hard to be good without God? I find it easier to be good. Without God? Yeah. And what's the secret? Uh, internalization of a uh, sense of responsibility and of um, uh, understanding of the necessity of, of moral beliefs. Furthermore, I do believe, and I think you've even published a book on the subject, Bob, that uh, we uh, are, whether we evolve by kin selection primarily or group selection, which I is now open again as a possibility, uh, that uh, we are hardwired to make moral decisions that do operate for the good of others, and uh, it's not uh, that is not overthrown by rejecting a particular mythology involving uh, divine creation of the species. So, understanding the the utility of the moral impulses, the fact that they had to earn their way into our lineage by being useful in some sense and possibly useful at a social level. Certainly that, but also you just feel good when you do something that's right. <laughs> and I won't try to put that in words, except to say, why do you feel good Yeah. Uh, when you do something right, when you do something brave, when you uh, take care of others, when you are honest, when it's difficult to be. You feel good whether you're a devout Christian or whether you're a secular humanist, it's because your brain is wired that way. Yeah. Do you get a great feeling, I do, from when somebody stops and asks you directions and you know and you can give them the directions? Sure. Does that make you feel really good? Sure it does. And that's interesting because, yeah. in the, you know, there are people you don't know, they will never return the favor. Yeah. Uh, so it's not, in a, certainly in a modern environment, it's not ultimately self-interested behavior. You know, a lot of people would argue that it was in the environment of revolution. You would have seen people again and again. But anyway, it's just interesting. It's one of the most gratifying parts of my life, you know, yeah. when it happens. I think of most persons' lives. Uh, I, a recent poll, that is last few years anyway, has shown that uh, believers and non-believers, the latter would include I guess what you call secular humanists, um, do not differ in their crime rate, divorce rate, and other outward signs of, of moral-based behavior, except one. I think fundamentalists uh, scored higher in participating and volunteering and participating in public service, mm -hmm. you know, non-professional yeah. public service. Which is, which is a good thing. Absolutely. We could, uh, secular humanists ought to do more, <laughs> and they'd feel very good if they did. Um, the, uh, you're a kind of a phenomenally productive person. Um, I have to assume you don't have much in the way of vices, which is interesting because vices, by and large, are succumbing to animal appetites, right? I mean, that, that's 
what a lot of what we call vice is, you know, various kinds of addictions to various no. bad habits. Um, uh, well, am I am I right? I mean, I mean, no. and, and it, it, you you don't you can you think of any vices that you a have and b want to share with the world? They're, they're <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can answer those questions. You no, know, that's separately. a really uh, that's uh, a disturbing question, um, and and I guess I don't have vices to speak of, uh, and except you know I uh, pride. Uh, I've got a lot of that. You think you think sometimes you have too maybe much? it's maybe overweening. You know, <laughs> uh, I, um, I I enjoy excelling and I enjoy getting credit for it and I enjoy dreaming of uh, glorious deeds, gloriously rewarded. But I think I'm completely normal in that. Uh, maybe I do more of it than the average person, and that would be by definition of advice. But. Uh, I don't drink except occasional glass of wine. I don't smoke. Uh, I uh, never uh, strayed in my marriage, and uh, you can look at it as one. You, you can say, "Oh, you're a virtuous person," but also the way one way I look at it is that uh, it allowed me to write more books. Was that the reason you didn't stray, or you know, that's one reason. <laughs> oh no, not straying. No, I uh, I had a very good marriage. But the point is that um, you know these other things I didn't fall into gambling and so on, just because I was I was driven. I, I wanted to um, achieve just as much as uh, my life would allow it in uh, in science and writing and thinking. Okay, well that that leads to um, just one other question. The in in, in uh, your book, the Insect Societies, it's dedicated to your wife, and as I yeah. recall, it says something like to Irene who understands. That's right. And, I, maybe I'm wrong. I've always thought that meant that she understood something about you or about your behavior or was tolerant of something about you or your behavior. That's right. You, you, what, what, what is no, it? No, that's exactly right. What is it? <laughs> What's she tolerant of? What, what is there that, yeah. that she needs? I mean, um, Single-mindedness, I think, uh, who, um, that is, um, putting more time into that work uh, that might have been spent with family, I'll admit it. But on the other hand, um, on the other hand, you know, a writer uh, or a person who can work at home, as a writer does, and, and as I did, a lot of my work was theoretical and compositional, and I even did experiments. I built a laboratory at home hmm. and did experiments at home. I did much of my systematic work with ants, with ants uh, at home. And more and more as the years wore on. Um, so even though probably I had working hours much longer than the average person, I used to, at one point I was working 80 or 90 hours a week, but you know, pushing through a book that is very complex. Uh, even so, I saw more of my family than most people do. Most you know people mm -hmm. in, in other professions who are coming in from nine to five or having to go on business trips and so on. Oh, there's a little lessening of the guilt. When you're doing writing a book, I'm sure that must be your case also. You can uh, stop anytime you want. You get tired of doing something and take a 30-minute break and chat with your, your wife, partner, friend, whoever, uh, and uh, then you go back to it. So they see perhaps more of you and hear more from you uh, than would be the case if you were uh, engaged in and conventional 
work. Hmm. Well, that's great. You've been, yeah. you've been able to reconcile uh, the two great conflicting forces in many people's lives, career and family. By the luck of the choice of my uh, devotion. I suppose that if I were a diplomat or a, a professional soldier uh, or a, um, a businessman, not so. Well, congratulations. And thanks a lot for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. Bob, thank you. It was great having yet another conversation with you. The ones we've had now go back over. Longer than either of us cares to remember, as they say. Yeah, I won't mention it, but it's measured in decades. <laughs> thanks a lot. Okay, thank you.